This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Julia Gossard. In this week's episode, I'll be chatting with Susan Grazel and Tammy Proctor about their co-edited volume, Gender and the Great War. We'll be focusing on ideas of how to teach using this edited collection that challenges us to reflect upon the role of gender history in shaping our understanding of this pivotal international event. Listeners familiar with World War I will definitely know both of my wonderful guests, but for those of you who are learning of this collection for the first time, let me provide a short introduction to each of our guests. Susan Grazel is professor of history at Utah State University, where she researches and teaches the history of modern Europe, gender, and the world wars. In fall 2019, she was a visiting fellow at All Souls College in Oxford, and in spring 2020, she held the UK Fulbright Distinguished Chair at the University of Leeds. This allowed her to complete a forthcoming monograph for Cambridge University Press called The Age of the Gas Mask, British Civilians and the Terrors of Total War. Her co-editor, Tammy Proctor, is Distinguished Professor of History and our intrepid department head here at Utah State University. Proctor is a specialist in modern European and gender history with a special emphasis on the history of youth, gender, and conflict. Tammy has published on a wide range of topics, including studies in the Boy Scouts and Girl Guides, women in espionage, and civilians. She's presently completing a book, Saving Europe, Food, War, and American Intervention, on the history of U.S. relief in Europe during and after the First World War. You can find Tammy on Twitter at USU Historienne. All right, well, let's dive right into talking about gender and the Great War. With edited collections, I always like to start a little bit with the origin story. It's always interesting to hear how these things come to be and what the impetus is behind publishing an edited collection together. So I wondered if we could discuss that a little bit. This actually has a very... Um you know, uh, the 100th anniversary of events matters to historians. And so as the 100th anniversary of the First World War was approaching, uh, Tammy and I met each other in Gorizia, Italy, where we were both participating in a really wonderful event there. And the Berkshire Conference, um, which started on the history of women, is a big, exciting international conference that covers genders and sexualities and meets every three years, we noticed that it was going to be meeting in 2014. And we just thought that the moment was right to have conversations about where the history of gender and this war stood. And we reached out to the organizers of the Berks to see if they would welcome a proposal that would involve what ended up being you know, 12 of us uh, talking over the course of the conference on this topic, bringing in some of the people whose work we most admired, and uh, just seeing where uh, things went from there. And those sessions were crowded and interesting and lots of conversations. And we all, those of us who were able to attend, went out for a meal afterwards and thought this could be a great volume that really asked questions about where the field was in particular subfields 
and more importantly and excitingly, I think where it could go. And I think part of the idea was uh, that because the centennial uh, was creating a lot of new scholarship, we wanted to have something that uh, teachers could use in their classrooms that um, both summarized uh, some of the scholarship on gender and also um, provided some ideas about where we hoped that that scholarship would go in the future. So um, the roundtables and, and the volume are both set up uh, kind of with a template in that it, each of the essays talks a little bit about you know, what's happened before, some of the research of that particular scholar, and uh, then the larger global context and where we hope things will go. I love this, that it started as this conversation about where is the field going, then at the Berks and this collaborative community of scholars and researchers on, on World War I. And I think, Tammy, you know, you bring up the organization of the book for our teacher listeners. This really is one of those books that is very well organized and you're able to, you know, assign all of it or pieces of it to different classrooms. You know, one of the central I think, arguments of of your work here is, is that gender history is important to understand World War I. And I just wondered, by adding gender to the study of war, what do you think this changes for students, for researchers, for the public at large? What does this contribution do to our understandings of this great international conflict? It really upends some of the assumptions that have been made about this war, uh, it, it makes civilians and the importance of civilians absolutely central to this as the first modern total war. It really helps us understand that this is a war that was about endurance and survival rather than epic battle. So just you know, basic assumptions about how we need to understand this war and how people who experienced it lived it. Well, and I think Sue and I have been around long enough in the field that I think it's going on more than two decades that we've been fighting our own little battle, which is to um, sort of broaden the meaning of what what the war meant um, in terms of societies, um, cultural changes. Uh, both of us have tried really hard to redefine what the, this notion of a home front is. And so this is a topic that that we both feel is important um, for anyone studying the war, whether it's a military historian or a social historian or a diplomatic historian. I think that's really important because I think oftentimes, you know, especially students in the classroom think of World War I as this big militaristic operation, but there's so much going on on the home front that's not necessarily simply military. There's also a lot of social repercussions, political repercussions, economic repercussions um, that make them part of the war. Thinking about this too, I, I love what you say that by adding gender, you know, you aren't just adding women and mixing. This isn't just a finding women in the past and putting them into the story of the Great War, but actually gender is a much larger encompassing idea than just women. Um, why is that such an important element to reiterate throughout this edited collection that we aren't just talking about the history of women, we're talking about the history of gender specifically? Well, I think that... Um you know, when when we talk about gender in the war, um, one of the starting points really has to be re-examining what we mean by men at war. And so it was important to us that all the essays dealt in some way with questions of both femininity and masculinity and how those constructions um, shape the way uh, 
those who live through the experience see it. And this is true in quite a few of the essays, and I'm sure we'll talk about them um, as we as we move through this. But um, I think that's one of the harder things to get across to students because they do seem to think that if you say gender, you mean women. And we really wanted to um, kind of take that concept apart. And again, the way the essays are organized so that it's gender and other categories of identity in the case of age or race or sexuality, but also sort of location concepts like warfare and and violence. It's this idea that you can't understand any of those big, important conceptual ideas that this war generates without linking the individual to the local, to the regional, to the global. And one of the core ways that people experience their lives is through these, you know, gendering of experience and it was just really important to us that we, you know, respected, you know, that kind of um, respecting our sources, respecting the ways that we're trying to bring the past to life. And um, if we don't sort of examine those categories critically, I think we miss out on a lot of what we can learn from these past experiences. And I think a lot of teachers, both K-12 teachers and university teachers, are um, increasingly interested in intersectionality and and how these um, identities speak to each other. And um, so we hope that we're making a contribution to that with this book as well. I think that you definitely are. That was actually something I was going to say is, is, you know, thinking about the chapter titles um, of the contributors here, you know, you have gender and citizenship, gender and resistance, gender and work, gender and race, gender and sexuality. Um, This is really focusing on intersectionality. And it strikes me as something that the the titles of these chapters and the content of them feel as if in the past they would have been like, you know, the the little box in the textbook, the little aside that they do over their gender and women or gender and race, you know, but instead you're putting these actors central to the conversation and demonstrating that the war is not this monolithic event. It really varies depending upon one's identity, one's class, race, gender, and sexuality. Yeah, I'm glad that 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 came through to you. I do think that there was a risk in this and and that we've probably fallen short in some areas just because we didn't get them all, right? We didn't get all the identities that that could have been included here. and, you know, for many reasons, we had to make a selection. But, you know, sometimes when I look at it now, I think, oh, why didn't we have a gender and religion chapter or, you know, dot, 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 fill in the blanks. So, um, no, I, I mean, the, they're, they're really obvious categories like gender and disability that, you know, that's partly who responded to the call and who is who is able to do this. But we also didn't organize this in the way sometimes uh, women are added in the section that's. Um, on one specific geographic area, right? So this is not, you know, women in the home front or or um, ways in which they're sort of isolated. I mean, there are women in the front lines, there are women who participate and as well as experience uh, violence that we didn't want to reify that. And it's also not organized in terms of uh, 
here's a box on culture, or here's a box yeah. on visual material, or here's a box on you know government and and economics, because those things are so integrated into these other categories. We we really made a conscious choice to say there are cultural and representations of all of these aspects of gender. So we're not going to have a kind of separate um, section on that. And, and I hope that worked. It did. And I, I, you know, I think that that's really important to recognize is that you're not just putting these in what might've been stereotypical categories. You're really including all of these different identities in the experience of world war one. I. I particularly like the gender and sexuality chapter by um, Anna Cardin Coyne and Laura Doan. And, you know, this this issue of um, really taking apart sexuality in the early 20th century, it reminded me a lot of Chauncey's Gay New York because it's obviously happening right around the same time and the ways in which, you know, masculinity and femininity are very much in construction during the war. You have masculinity meaning one thing, femininity meaning another, and then depending upon one's position and work or the war, those things could become very complex. I mean, we both love that chapter. So, and also the illustrations in it are fantastic. They really are. We're so lucky in terms of the people who agreed to be on this journey with us. So I've, you know, all the respect in the world for Anna and Laura and uh, their contributions. And I love the fact that some of the examples are from Poland in that chapter, that it we were really trying to also push the geographic uh, boundaries of this. So I just think that's that's just such an exciting chapter. I think that that's one of the chapters that especially college educators who are trying to demonstrate the ways in which masculinity and femininity and sexuality are fluid and change and social constructions, that would be a really great chapter to assign and to look at those images that they have there, right? Maybe do a primary source analysis. It's something that's very tactile and they can take away and get a good argument out of it and understand how historians of gender and sexuality research and what their arguments are. It's really central there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, I hope that's one of its uses. And similarly, you know, that's a category that maybe people who would expect in a volume that deals with gender, but including something like Michelle Moyd's wonderful chapter on violence, I think mm-hmm. is absolutely groundbreaking, um, not only because the perspective that she brings in her expertise on African history in this war just you know, helps decenter the Western Front in a way that I think is very powerful and could be, I think, very exciting for students. But the way in which we consider the implications of violence um, through a gender lens is, I just think, you know, again, one of the directions I hope the field is going. I also think the way that um, Michelle uses examples from the East African campaign in particular are not the ones that people necessarily would expect who've studied the Western Front. Um, and that's also sort of exciting to um, broaden uh, the scope, you know, to really consider this as a global conflict um, in, a, in a way that I think students really enjoy learning, you know, about that, those aspects. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Since I know you both quite well, and I know students who take take your courses at Utah State University, you know, this is something I hear quite often is the idea that World War One is is a global conflict. And I felt that very much in this work. This is not just a World War One of only Europe or only, you know, the United States' contributions in it. It includes really the entire world. What's the African expect what is the African experience here? Um, and so forth. So you're not looking at this as a monolithic war where everything was the same. I mean, you say in each region, in each year, in each social class, in each different type of gender identity that existed, you're experiencing the war somehow differently, which really opens up this giant conflict into an even more complex one. But that's a good thing. Complexity lets us see so much more about how people experience the past. Uh, Thank you. I really, that's really great to hear because I think that's one of the real intentions of this. Um, Also to let really gifted historians show us what you can do with your sources um, in different ways. So women, the, the history of women in this war had been relegated to women and work in a, in a, like they were nurses and they worked in factories and that was sort of, and there's just such a depth and complexity depending on situation. You know, some of these chapters, there's, there's overlap um, and that's sort of deliberate, but choices that we, you know, sort of Tam and I talked about, for example, to have a separate chapter on memory and a separate chapter on mourning, rather than conflating those two, I think we hope we'll let students think about how those things are different, um, how they might feed into each other, but how they also reveal a kind of complicated story about the legacies of the war. And I think we owe a debt of gratitude to the, uh, to the scholars who contributed chapters here, because we did ask them to go outside their comfort zones a bit um, in that um, all of them are specialists in particular areas. So I'm thinking of Karen Pertone, you know, as a specialist in Russian history or uh, Giovanna's chapter on occupation is centered in her work in um, the Balkans. But we asked them to frame everything in, in a broader context, to bring in some comparative elements, to think about the global patterns. And so, um, you know, I think both of us appreciate the fact that people were willing to take that on because it, you know, it, it is uh, hard when you're used to really digging down into your own monograph. Definitely. But I think what that does nicely is, is that you have those you know, I think Sue said there's some intentional overlap there. It creates connections for the readers, but then they get a little bit of a taste of what's going on in Russian historiography, what's going on in Polish historiography, what was this experience like that they might not have been familiar with from other works, um, especially popular works on World War One or things that they had learned of that previously. So that's, I think, a really important part of this is that it's not only pushing women and gender here, but it's also pushing this regional understanding of where were fronts of World War One? Where were experiences of World War I? It's very traditional to organize, you know, compilations or studies of this war based on geography. And so that's, there's a very deliberate move here not to, um, you know, gender in North America in the war, right? Instead to sort of think thematically in these, in these categories that I think allow you, because they're not, the ch- none of these studies, that was also one of the challenges for ourselves as contributors, and certainly something we asked of our contributors is we didn't give them a huge amount of space. 
Um, and, and we asked them to do a lot to talk about uh, kind of exciting developments in the field, directions for future research, to sort of think about what they, you know, what were the big takeaways in these fields? And we want people to be hungry for more at the end of them. That was certainly my feeling about my contribution. And, you know, it's why we insisted on having a bibliography that we thought would be helpful as well as a section at the end that's really, here's where the scholarship is. Here's what people, you know, that was a very challenging thing for speaking for myself, but to, to write with Tammy to sort of summarize, you know, a hundred years of scholarship um, and say, here's where we've been and here's where we might go. In a very short essay too. <laughs> we both kept uh, wanting to expand it and we, we really couldn't, but um, yeah, it's, uh, I, it, it was a challenge, but I, I think we're pleased with the way uh, the essays came together, too, because we also didn't want it just to be a, a collection of conference papers, which, you know, has its place, but that wasn't really what we were aiming at here. I'm sure that if there are any students listening, none will complain that you have very concise chapters here um, that explain things in very... I think easy prose and easy to understand, but still are pushing a number of important arguments and questions and new paradigms forward. And that's really, I think, an accomplishment to do. Plus thinking about how you might use this work as a student researcher. I mean, this thing contains an incredible bibliography, an incredible discussion of historiography and methodology. This is just something that I, I see upper division undergraduate students and graduate students really using to their advantage uh, in research about this. There's so many useful tools and resources in here. I have a colleague who assigned this to an upper division class um, and I Skyped in, you know, just to talk to them. And it was interesting because um, she had them take, pick, pick a chapter from this and then pair it with their research project. So it was kind of um, a starting point you know, pick a theme, read the chapter, look at the footnotes, and then uh, go off and do your own research. And I thought that was really exciting to think that it might be generating student research um, from the, you know, from the volume. We also really thought this could be used in methods classes for history programs or just to introduce sort of concepts in methodology, which I think can sometimes get a little fuzzy when we're trying to explain it to, to undergraduates. The idea that the, the First World War is this event that generated an enormous set of archives and responses, and therefore lots of different interpretations about it. And that if you wanted to think about how you studied a big event, this would give you some tools for how different people would start to approach it. I'm teaching the methods course this spring, so I had actually already thought of that, but I'm glad that you backed up my assumption there that this would be great in a methods course because you're right. There's so many different methodologies here that are explored in short, very easily digestible chapters that I think students can get a sense of how that works. You know, thinking back to what we were talking about in terms of the gender and violence chapter or the gender in mourning, these are great ways that historians have taken new historiographical fields and thought about the history of emotions or the history of violence and sexuality and gender all together and how they're able to do that makes a lot of sense to students. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, just looking at the list of authors here too, most, most of our authors are pretty seasoned as, um, not just as historians, but as teachers. And I think that, um, as Sue said, it's nice because you can kind of see their styles coming through, not just in terms of their research and writing and the questions they're interested in, but also I think the way that um, they organize and convey information. And for students, that that can be kind of liberating to know that there's different ways um, to tell a story, you know, and to and to analyze the past. I also think that there's some concepts that are generally or might generally be new to students um, for, who come from different sort of subfields. So Karen Hunt is just in this incredibly interesting work on food and provisioning. And we had different conversations about what to call that chapter, right? It wasn't really just gender and food. And so the idea of calling it everyday life and thinking therefore about what, what went into that and the way that a historian who is based in Britain and a really eminent historian of, uh, political women in Britain and socialist women and labor and women really put that case study, which she knows so well in a much broader context. But then there's a whole historiography in in some geographic regions about the history of everyday life that it feeds into. And um, I just think that's also one of the, I, I hope, strengths of the volume. I mean, students love food, so I'm sure that that will be a a well-read chapter there. I also really enjoyed that because you did get to see the ways in which food and gender and experiences of everyday life really came forward. As you were writing this, you know, we've talked about using this in terms of methods and new historiographies, possibly doing something with even the images. How else did you imagine that teachers might use this work in their own classrooms? Is, Is there anything that you've done in your own classes that maybe you'd like to touch on here? Well, I haven't taught World War I since the book came out, which is kind of funny, um, or not not in a regular classroom um, in, where I could use it. And uh, so I haven't, I haven't any experience in actually using it, but I guess when I imagine how it might be used, I, I could see for an undergrad class, maybe um, picking and choosing a few chapters or doing something where you assign uh, groups to read different chapters and then present and talk about them and so that they can see how the themes interact. Uh, but Sue may have more direct experience with this. I don't know. I also hope that for in, in any in a variety of classrooms, I, I guess I'm, I'm dodging the question a little bit, not just in teaching the First World War, but in teaching the history of the 20th century, just to be very ambitious or the history of modern Europe, that if you're using a text that's set um, during the wartime period, that you could link related chapters in here to this. So I think, for example, if you uh, the chapter on resistance and citizenship, you know, two issues that seem very lively um, in our contemporary situations. But to think about giving someone um, a speech from um, Eugene Debs in a course on American history or having someone analyze, you know, one of the the iconic texts of the First World War, uh, like Wilford Owen, uh, Wilford Owen's poetry, and and framing that in terms of how do we think about violence, or how do we think about age, or how do we think about the experiences of new modes of warfare? Uh, You know, I think 
Dolcie Decorum Est is one of those poems that appears in lots of different uh, syllabi, but it's also about chemical warfare. And I think you could you know, do a snippet from the chapter on gender and warfare to think about, well, how did people respond to these new modes of war making? So I see this as just like a supplement where you wouldn't have to read something again, that's very lengthy, that could contextualize, you know, a variety of primary sources. And I think also that now that we're deep in the time of COVID and, you know, it's, it's hard for students to get, um, interlibrary loan books, and it's it's hard for them to get to a museum or do some of the things that we might offer as pairing. Um, I, I do think that this would work pretty well with some of the online collections of primary sources, um, newspapers in particular, where they could look for some of these themes. Um, there's quite a lot of World War I poetry and propaganda posters, so analyzing uh, those you know, pick a theme from the book and then analyze it would be kind of interesting. And in um, the chapter on memory, um, the the image there is of a, a memorial, a Doughboy memorial that was widely re- uh, reproduced across the United States. So it could be that that is even possible to visit as an outdoor kind of experience. Um, I know here in Utah, the closest one to us is in Ogden, which is about 45 minutes away. But um, most states have copies of the statue. So, you know, there'd be ways to do um, kind of interesting things uh, that tie into some of the debates about monuments that have um, been going on this year. A socially distanced field trip. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the, those are all great ideas. And Tammy, you're right with thinking about the online components, too, because there are so many primary source collections through, um, you know, the World War One Museum, the British archives that are really great that do have a number of World War One documents that are very accessible to students. So there are ways that you could pair, you know, a World War One diary, you know, with, you know, a, a chapter of this book or an object, you know, a picture of a gas mask and, you know, having them analyze this together. And so kind of pairing this with one of those primary sources is a, is a fabulous idea there. And in addition to local monuments, I would just add that when I've taught uh, the history of the First World War, certainly at USU, there are, there are in special collections in university archives, uh, campuses that were in existence during the First World War usually have a really interesting story about what students were doing or how buildings were repurposed. And this just would give you a little bit more of a context for some of the stories that will emerge at the very local level. And I think that is a really exciting thing to have students do. Can I just add one more thing, too? I think that uh, with the centennial this year of um, uh, women's suffrage in the United States, uh, it's also a, a possibility to kind of tie some of those conversations about women uh, who got access to the vote, women who didn't, uh, the ongoing battles that uh, women faced in the 1920s for um, citizenship and rights, a lot of that could tie into this, uh, to the themes that are in the World War I volume. Oh, exactly. I think Kimberly Jensen's, you know, the first chapter that's that's in this collection, Gender and Citizenship, would speak volumes to a lot of those issues. So if you're organizing a class around 
you know, the suffragettes and the movement for the vote, this could be a great way to start too of how that got mobilized as well. There's also, you know, this, we, we didn't quite, you know, we thought a lot about the order in which things should appear. And so I always think for, for me, I guess the um, Kim's chapter on citizenship and Erica's chapter on resistance are sort of a pair. Um, the sort of conversations, uh, again, not just about what it means to participate or have the right or access and what the limitations are in that about participating in national events, national war efforts, but also that within nation states, there's resistance to these um, criticisms of war efforts, criticisms of governments and how they're conducting war or how they're um, violating the rights of certain members of communities as they're as they're working out. And that just seems, you know, just in a course that's looking at American politics or, you know, politics in the 20th century, that, that both of those chapters really make a contribution. Well, I think we've we've come up with some really great ideas for instructors and students of how to use this book. Um, you know, given our listeners an understanding of the types of topics that are covered in this edited collection, and I, I want to end our conversation by asking you maybe something that's a bit of a Sophie's choice after you have edited this great collection of works that are really pushing new paradigms. But where do you see the most exciting fronts going in World War One historiography? And that's an intentional pun of using fronts there. <laughs> I, I appreciate the pun. I think, you know, again, we didn't organize this in, in, in other ways, but I think one of the things that I would be excited to see more of is just more attention to the material culture, uh, to the history of, you know, objects and emotions and, and the history of the body in relationship to this war. I think there is new and exciting work. I think there is so much more that we could learn about, uh, you know, fronts uh, and just regions that have been relatively understudied, the Ottoman Empire, Africa, the war in Asia and its its impacts, and just bringing them together really works that are connecting local and uh, global things and that are very intentionally intersectional in terms of thinking about race and sexuality and gender expression and gender identity and you know class and and status I think I think there's there's an exciting new generation of scholars that are just really going to push us to think harder about this yeah, I think that the answer here is we want more of all of this. <laughs> but um, I will say yes, that, yeah, yeah. But but I will say that uh, one thing we hope will happen is that some of the scholarship will also deepen the history that's told of the United States in the war, because um, for a long time World War One has been a um, kind of a I don't know, a, a sort of blip in U.S. history. It's not It's not emphasized in any way. And a lot of these themes have not been drawn out the way that they could be, I think, in a history of the United States. You know, there's a new film coming out this year that's about um, race in the training camps in Texas during the war. Um, I, I think with uh, the emphasis now on Black Lives Matter, um, tracing the history of um, particularly the, the role of um, African-American men 
in the war and in its aftermath could be really fruitful and interesting. So I guess I would love to see more of this reflected back in the history of the United States. I think that's a good point, Tammy, too, especially thinking about, you know, a state like Utah, right, that had, uh, did they have German internment here? Yes. And actually, you can go to um, Salt Lake City to see the cemetery where a few of the um, soldiers are buried. I, I mean, the civilians, sorry, the German civilians were buried. But um, yes, uh, on the University of Utah campus is where it is today. Wow. I mean, I think that that's an example of something that's so central, actually, to that physical spot, that memory um, and that experience of internment. But you're right. It's something that's often left out of world or not world war, but U.S. history courses and things that students take. It's also just so influential in terms of the racial politics of the rest of the 20th century. You have on the Western front, men and women from around the world um, gathering together in this moment and then dispersing again in the midst of a global pandemic. That should sound familiar. And I just think there are real resonances with our contemporary moment that are worth thinking about the the failure to resolve many of the issues that were raised by the global participation of black men and women. I think that those all sound like excellent ideas and I, I hope that that's where the research takes us. But thank you so much for joining me today to discuss gender and the great war. For our listeners, if you are interested in purchasing a copy of gender and the great war, visit Oxford university press. Thank you again, Tammy and Sue. Thank you. Thank you so much.